Welcome to Beyond, conversations with artists, makers, explorers who have gone outside of the norm to create their own true world, to sing their own precious song. Each of us is born with a song inside, but most will die having never sung it. Imagine if, as a little child, instead of being asked, what will you do when you grow up? What will you be? Or what kind of job will you get when you grow up? If instead you are told, now is the time to listen. As you grow, listen for the sounds of your song. The song that comes from your blood, your bones, your people. Listen for the melody, the verses, the tune. And when you hear your song, sing it. Imagine that kind of world. That's the kind of world I'm devoted to building. I am your host, Daphne Cohn, the creator of multiple online programs, courses, and within a community for artists, makers, and writers dedicated to the courage and practice of singing their own song. I ask you, are you ready to sing your own song? Are you ready to go beyond? My guest today is Asia Suler. Asia is a writer, teacher, and medicine woman who runs her own online apothecary and offers courses on intuitive plant medicine, business as a spiritual journey, and the pussy portal. When Asia was a teenager, she became ill with a chronic pain condition, vulvodynia. Allopathic doctors told her there is no cure. They told her she would be in constant pain for the rest of her life unless they removed the nerve endings in her vulva. From somewhere deep inside, Asia heard a resounding no. This was the beginning of Asia coming to know the sound of her own voice and choosing to follow her own knowing. This knowing led her into the woods, and the woods led her home. These days, I'm very particular about the people I call teachers. I'm looking for those who are living into a vision greater than my own. Teachers who courageously and steadfastly follow paths of strength, healing, and hope. Asia is one of those teachers. Some of the things we talk about in this conversation are how Asia healed vulvodynia and Lyme disease twice, Asia's exact process for writing and co-creation with nature, what to do when we feel like we don't belong, and how to find belonging, specific action steps to reignite your intuition and creativity through your pelvic bowl, the importance of reciprocity with the earth, and simple ways to practice it. You can learn more about Asia at onewillowapothecaries.com. May this conversation inspire you to go within, to the raw, wild expanse of mystery that is your beating heart, vibrating body, pulsating life, in order to go beyond, to utter the sacred, your words, dance, painting, art, to sing your song. Welcome, Asia to beyond the podcast. It is a joy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Daphne. I'm excited to be here with you. Yes, I'm I'm actually really excited to to be in conversation with you because not only have I been immersed in your world for a little while now, and especially this last week or two in preparing for the the interview, but also the this way in which you lead your life so connected to the plants, so connected to the natural rhythm of the earth and to one's own body is very much top of mind and and being for me right now. So it's perfect timing. And I'm going to begin with 
something that is, is kind of diving mid, like diving right in, in the center of your story. And so we can also go backwards if you want, and we'll go forwards for sure. But when you were in college, you talked about a professor, I think the name Molly McLennan, uh, started a Native American studies program, and you ended up graduating with a minor in that program, because as you said, you loved every class that she taught. And this is a quote, you said, you realized I'm not crazy. This is actually just a different way of thinking than I was handed growing up. And this way of thinking feels so much truer and realer than anything I've ever experienced before. It feels like coming home. What is this way of thinking? Like, what was this coming home for you? Yeah. Oh, I'm so grateful for Professor McGlennon and everything that I learned being in that program with her. And I remember, I think I was a sophomore when the program started and I was in the first class with her. And I think it was intro to um, Native American philosophy and belief systems and was sort of an overarching course. But the things that were put to words in that course, it was this huge light bulb moment for me of realizing that I had had these belief systems about the earth and my place on the earth and the way things worked here for a long time without having any reflection or affirmation from the culture that I lived in, that this was like real in any way. And so to me, at the heart of this belief is just the idea that we are one living being among many living beings, that every aspect of this world is alive and sentient. So not just the animals whose intelligence we can measure with our tools, but the stones and the trees and the winds and the waters, and that we are all here to be in collaboration together. And that this world is more aptly thought of as a co-creation. And our role here is to be in co-creation with those around us. And we are neither greater nor lesser than those that we share this world with, but it's a deep privilege to be here and to be in connection with these beings who we share this world with, who are frankly our elders in a lot of different Native American belief systems and indigenous belief systems around the world, humans are seen as the younger brothers and sisters of creation. We are very new on the scene, evolutionarily speaking. And so all of the denizens of the natural world, or as I like to say, the living world are our teachers in this way. And so we can look to them for guidance and it's our responsibility to learn how to be in connection, communication, and communion with them. Two things from that. One is I want to touch, I want to come to the co-creation piece, but first I want to ask about like when you're in these classes and you're hearing this and there is this recognition of something that is so right and, and so different from what you have been taught your whole life. Like what does it do to you? What impact does that have on you? Oh, it was an amazing experience. <laughs> it it really was, um, I guess the word would be a psychic opening for me. Colors were more vivid. I remember the, the campus where I went to school was also an arboretum. And so there was big old trees scattered throughout the campus. And I remember looking out this window at this humongous 200 year old tree and 
really feeling like I could see its life force shining from it. Like I could see the way in which it was moving was not just this inert, you know, stack of wood, which is kind of what I had been taught, but this real true living sentient being and everything just took on this layer of profundity and meaning. And I just, the gratitude that I felt for being on this earth and being able to connect and, you know, look at the squirrels running around on campus or to sit underneath one of those trees, it opened my heart in this way where just everything in my life became that much more vivid and that much more infused with this sense of wonder. And it, it was affirming in this way too, for the the child in me who knew these things innately. And I think all children do. I think that we're in, especially in the Western world taught to forget at certain points in time, but we all knew this. So it was a return too to that childlike sense of just joy and delight in being here on earth. When you said that, like how colors became more vivid and your sense of wonder was awakened and how fascinating that is that just in basically being given a different story and believing it, knowing it in your body, how that altered what you then saw and experienced that it was the, the living into that story that changed the way you lived. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think just being in that first class in particular, and then the subsequent studies I was able to do, I just understanding that your worldview changes your reality. Um, it was, it was life-changing for me to realize, oh, I'd been raised in a certain worldview. And because of that, I actually only perceived certain aspects of reality. But when I learn about different worldviews and connect to what I feel was my nascent worldview, the worldview that I was born with, I actually begin to perceive parts of reality that I didn't even see before. Okay. That in and of itself, like I just feel like that alone, we could pause and just sit with that. It is so powerful, especially as women, as creatives, to understand the depth of what you just said, of the power of what you said, that the changing, it's not just being exposed to a different worldview, but really embodying it how much that gives us this power to create what it is the life that we want to be living and so I'm going to actually link that to this piece of co-creation because of course it's not just me choosing to live the life I want to live and having it happen but me being in co-creation in connection with this world around me that is it's all happening like through all of these different pieces. And what does co-creation look like for you? Hmm. Well, to me, there's so much potential in what it, it could look like just knowing about different indigenous systems around the world, both historical and present. So I know that I was, I was really raised with this belief that humans are innately like a force of damage on this planet, um, that there's something distinctly flawed about, about us, kind of that original sin idea, and that we sort of cause harm. And 
you know, through these classes and, and through the subsequent years of learning more, I understand that it's, that's really not the case, that our, our, our worldview and our culture informs how we act in the world and how we see ourselves in the world around us. And so depending on, you know, what we believe, that will change how we act. So if we look at different indigenous cultures around the world who have this belief of being in co-creation, they interact very differently with the world around them. And in fact, their actions and a lot of their structures are designed to create more diversity on this planet, more harmony and more balance. So I remember learning, for example, that you know, this whole Eastern seaboard where I live, I live um, in, in North Carolina, in Cherokee land, and this whole Eastern seaboard, we now know ethnobotanists and, and anthropologists now know that these massive forests, which European settlers walked into and thought, oh my gosh, this, these forests are full of nuts and food and medicine, as if by chance that they were planted. And we know this about the rainforest as well, that a lot of the rainforest could even be considered like a permaculture garden. So that's just, I mean, that's an incredible example of the way in which I believe humans are meant to function on this planet, which is to be able to listen to the earth, communicate with the beings around them. And from that place of communication and respect, co-create greater harmony and diversity. So in my personal life, um, you know, I, I try to practice this on a small scale and just in the place where I live, communicating with the land, taking time to have blessing ceremonies, to bless the spirits here, to talk to the waters, to talk to the creatures, to really ask, what is it that, that you want here on this land that I'm just here to be in creation with you, that I'm not going to press my agenda on this land or what I think should be where, but to really ask and learn how to trust those intuitive hits that I get to follow them. You said something in another interview once where you talked about with the asking and I really, I've started doing this. So you, you talked about when we ask or maybe introduce ourselves to a plant and like say, hi, you know, I'm Daphne and like literally introduce ourselves to the plant to pay attention to the expectation that we have around that, that I might immediately expect the plant to respond in some way and be disappointed if it doesn't, or think it's, you know, in quotes, not working or something. Can you, can you speak to that a little about this relationship that we have and what it looks like to actually build the relationship? Yeah. So if, you know, you were raised in a Western paradigm and weren't really exposed to, for example, animistic belief systems. Animism is the idea that everything on this planet is alive and full of consciousness and works together in this greater whole. And, and, and part of our role here is to navigate relationships. Then, then there's not going to be as much of a developed muscle in this way, right? So we have to work that muscle of learning how to have these relationships. And I always say when I teach about plant communication that this is a relationship that needs to be courted. So just like you would, you know, if you wanted to be friends with another human, you would reach out, you would spend time together. You would not expect that right away, 
they would like tell you their deepest secrets. <laughs> well, the same is true with plants or other beings of the living world that, you know, it might take a minute. And, and I think a big part of this too, is our own minds, because we are learning how to reprogram our brains to actually be open to the different ways in which plants communicate with us. And for most people, that's not going to be like an auditory, clear message, like, you know, striking down from the heavens, it's going to be a feeling, a sense, an emotion, um, even just like a subtle movement. So we all receive information in, in slightly different ways. And that's captured in the ideas of the clairs. So some people are clairvoyant, meaning they see things. So you might see something around a plant. It might not be as vivid as a as an actual like projection of a, of a being or a fairy or a deva, but you might see light or you might see the plant move in a particular way that means something to you, or maybe you're clairaudient. And so maybe the expectation there is that you would hear a direct message, but instead you might have a song come into your head and that song will be part of the message, or maybe you're clairsentient, which means that you feel things. So you're going to talk to this plant and then you're going to have an emotion in your body, or you're going to have a, a feeling sense of something. And that's even more nebulous than hearing a song or seeing a plant move, but it can be just as powerful. And I, I say this as someone who is definitely clear sentient and, and learn to really trust that and value that over the years. And so it's a process, not just of like earning trust or getting to know the plant, but it's also a process of learning to trust ourselves. And I think this also links back to the co-creation piece that the world wants to be in co-creation with us. We are, even though we are very um, young, evolutionarily, evolutionarily speaking, we are very powerful. Clearly we can do a lot of things on this planet and, and harness our abilities in very particular ways. And so of course this earth wants to work with us, the plants and the stones and, and the denizens of nature want to work with us. And so that co-creation, while I named specifically working on the land, it can look like so many different things. Like my writing is a co-creation. I directly receive messages and information from the earth and I work with the earth to create pieces of writing to share with people. And so just to say for all those who are creatives out there, this is absolutely a part of the co-creation that the earth wants to work with you in your creative projects and delights in your creative projects, because through your creativity, that's how we create more wholeness on earth. Mm, it's beautiful. And I can feel it. Like, as you say that I can feel the power of that. And this idea of we, again, this is a, this is a paradigm that we're raised in and is very different from the one that you're speaking to where creativity comes from within and if it's writing it's words that come from our head if it's painting it comes you know out of our hands but not as if it's its own creativity one as kind of its own spirit and this that is interacting with in relationship with the earth and all that is around it and that they feed each other are nurtured by each other and something is made like I'm, I'm imagining based on what you're saying that what gets created is different 
when we hold that awareness of that relationship. Oh yeah. It's much deeper <laughs> and, and, you know, not to place a value on it, but just for my own work, it's much better. <laughs> like when I create from like my mind or, you know, just my little box of experience, like it's good, but it's nowhere near the kind of potency when I co-create with the earth, when I, I'm, I receive an idea from, from this earth or from my guides and translate that idea into words. It has a life in a way that other words don't. And I think by practicing this so much in the last decade, like I, I've, I've become a little bit picky about things that I read because I can, I can feel it. Like I can feel when someone is coming from that very mind-based place of like, oh, I'm going to write this really smart thing versus someone coming from this place of really being in co-creation with something bigger than themselves. Like that kind of writing is so enlivening and exciting. And there's this life force behind it that just ignites your life force. And so, you know, it's interesting, the more you practice this, the more you're going to really be able to feel that when it comes up in other people's art. I don't tend to ask questions like the one I'm about to ask because it's a little bit more of a, well, what I, what I'm going to ask, and then I'll actually, I'll explain it is what I'm going to ask is if you can give an example of, of how this works for you. And I'll say more in a minute. And I don't usually ask those kinds of questions because it can take us away from our own experience and being creative with, with our own experience. And yet what you're talking about is so different from how so many of us were raised that it can be really helpful nonetheless to have examples of what it looks like for you to sit down to write and to do it in relationship with with your environment. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. So for me, often the process begins when I'm outside. So when I'm outside normally without agenda. So I'm pittering around in the garden or I'm going for a walk or I'm just sitting on a, a rock by the creek. And normally I have something on my own heart <laughs> that I'm really trying to figure out for myself in my life. You know, I mean, we're all humans. We all have things that we struggle with and you can take that to nature. Like you can take that to the earth. It's, it's not about not being on that human journey and all the human things that come up with it. So normally I have something on my heart that I'm trying to figure out for myself. And as I'm out in nature and interacting, um, for me, it will often come in as both a feeling and a, a, a formalized set of words. So I, I am um, claircognizant in this way. That's another one of the clairs where you kind of just have downloads. Um, and sometimes those, those downloads are like a, a package of, of words or just an understanding that suddenly appears. And so I will receive like a, a message from the living world that will just kind of appear in my body and my mind. And I, I know that that's where it's coming from because it's this feeling of immediate melting relief of being seen mm -hmm. and of feeling then deeply connected. Like, oh, I thought I was just struggling alone in this little box of a problem that I had. And then I just had this peace come in for the world that 
it just made so much sense. And, and it's often very simple, but it's, it's, it's simple, but it's coming with this like deep wellspring of wisdom and love from the world. And so I will receive that. And then I'll start getting excited about what I received that it, because it helped me so much, it helped reframe something that I was seeing. And so then I'll go home often and I'll, I'll write down what I heard, um, or I'll, I'll write down what I'm continuing to hear. And as I write, that's really when a lot of the connections start being made like, Oh, like this, I'm, I'm writing this message down and it makes so much sense because I was here with this tree and that tree is such a symbol of, you know, this particular kind of process or wisdom. And so then I'll start making more of like the cognitive connections beyond those emotional connections. And then normally from there, it's then a process of kind of putting my maybe day-to-day editor hat on and refining what I wrote. And that too feels like a a co-creation with the earth because I'm kind of taking the raw material, like the raw clay, and I'm using the skills that I've developed from being a lifelong writer and, you know, writing as a part of my work now for over a decade and just, you know, crafting it into something that could be received and heard by other people. So you know, that's part of my, my joy and my process and everyone's process is different. But for me, I have a, a, a side of me that absolutely loves being a teacher. And so while I love receiving and I love the creativity of using language to try and capture the feeling of that moment, I also love being able to use my skills to translate it in a way that's accessible to other people. I get very excited about that next phase. So you know, I, I think a lot of people think, oh, you go for Nate, you got walks in nature and you're receiving these downloads and you come and you just like write this perfect manifesto. And that is just so not true. You know, like sometimes I'll write 10 drafts of something and, you know, I just keep editing it and refining it until I feel like, okay, like I found, you know, nothing's going to be perfect, but I've, I've found that balance between the capturing the moment in a way that still every time I read it reignites in me the experience and expressing in a way that's going to be able to um, be received and and make sense and touch other people and it comes back to that piece about really trusting oneself and in a lot of ways that's also a countercultural behavior that uh, is to just to simply and it's not simple necessarily, um, or maybe not easy, but to simply trust oneself is a radical act in our, in our culture. And in this example of trusting the relationship that you have, trusting what you received, trusting that there's value, trusting that you are the person to then take it and share it and having that whole piece be, um, yeah, just be something that you trust so deeply. It's, it's beautiful. Okay, I want to move into this one thing where you talk about multidimensional beings. You say when we connect into plants as multidimensional beings, we can start to see our own multidimensionality again. In this disconnection from the living world, we've stopped being able to see ourselves as the multidimensional beings that we are. When we can see that, when we can see that in the plants, it really opens up this portal of understanding to seeing ourselves in such a deeper and wider way. Being in relationship with the living world is really the only way to access this wider understanding of ourselves. What, first of all, does it mean to you when you talk about being multidimensional? Uh, 
at being a, a multidimensional being, what that looks like. Yeah, for me, at its most simple, that means that we're not just beings of flesh and brain and synapses firing, that we have an aspect to ourselves that goes beyond what can be measured and, you know, physically seen and quantified that we have an aspect to ourselves that is soul, that is spirit, that goes beyond even this lifetime or this particular experience in this body, which is not at all to distance or disparage ourselves from the experience of being in a body or being here on this planet, because that's very sacred and really profound. And I think that's part of why for a long time in my life, I was very resistant to spiritual communities and spiritual belief systems because I saw the way in which there was this divorcing from the body, that somehow this reality or this earth or this body was just a, a through point or um, something that you know is weighing us down that eventually we'll ascend from. And I think the opposite is true, that it's a privilege to be here and that we, we came here for this incredible experience of having a body and being with this earth, like the soul of this planet, like what a profound being that we get to be with. Like I consider this, this earth, the soul of the earth, like an archangel, like we are with this powerful archangel that is planet earth and what a privilege that is. And it is important to know that we are both and that we are of the earth and we are more than the earth. Just like, I think the same is true for the earth itself, that the earth is this very physical entity and being, and also that the energies of this earth transcend the physical and the beings that live on this earth also transcend the physical. So we are not the only ones to have spirits or souls far from it. Everything on this planet is animated by spirit and soul. It is the life force on this planet. And I think when we can see plants as beings that have spirits and consciousness and, and soul, that it becomes easy for us to then see that in our own selves, to recognize that multidimensionality inside of our, our own beings and that multidimensionality that is in truth connected to everything else. And I think that connection piece is, is a huge part of actually being able to understand the wholeness of who we are. So I want to take a minute actually, because in hearing you speak, I think, okay, these are big words. These are big ideas. We talk about them a lot, soul, spirit, uh, and I want to ground it in your experience because you have very particular experiences that have at least shown for you the, the truth of these words, like what they, the, that where they become more than just words, but they become alive in you. And so there's a couple different examples and you can speak to whichever one you want, but you have an example of healing yourself in college and well over college and the years that followed. And you can speak to that. There's also two times with Lyme disease and, and in all three of these examples, it wasn't just, it wasn't a, a question of taking the right medicine, the Western medicine, so much as all these different ways of connecting with soul, with spirit and healing on all these different levels. Is there one in particular that you want to speak to? 
That, sure. Yeah. That I mean, it all, <laughs> yeah, no, it all, it honestly, it feels like such a continuum continuum in my life because it was just, it's been one very interesting spiral of, um, you know, walking this path of having chronic health issues. And I have a very, my body is a very loud communicator <laughs> and I am very grateful for my body in this way because my body does not let me get too far off my own path. And so when I was in my late teens, I developed my first yeast infection and it spiraled into a, a chronic yeast condition where I had an infection 24 seven and was a combination of that plus um, other stuff going on in my life. Like the fact that I had some severe undiagnosed food allergies and um, physical injury that led me to have a chronic pain condition called vulvodynia. So vulvodynia at its most basic means vulvular pain. And the thing about vulvodynia is that Western medicine has no idea what to do with it. Like they're basically what I just got told over and over again is like, you're in a massive amount of pain and we don't know why. Mm -hmm. And so I really tried to go like the Western traditional route in every way that I could to heal myself and nothing worked. And so my breaking point was when uh, I was told that my only recourse was to get surgery to remove nerve endings from my vulva. And there was a moment where I was being told that, where it was like this voice inside of me rose up and said, no. And I wasn't even sure where exactly that voice came from. I just knew it was my true self. And it was also a part of me that was a guide for the rest of me. And I just thought to myself, I'm following that voice from now on. That's the voice that I'm going to follow. And, you know, I, I, so I really started to chart my own path and the bedrock of that path was really developing my own profound spiritual connection with the living world. So I dealt in part with the pain that I was experiencing by going out and being in nature. I felt very unseen in, in, in school and amongst my community of peers. I think anytime someone's dealing with chronic pain, it's often invisible. And so people who suffer from chronic pain often feel invisible and unseen. And especially in chronic pain in this area of your body, where you're not even supposed to talk about it, it's kind of like a double whammy. <laughs> and so uh, I started talking to the trees instead of talking to other humans. And I started sitting by the Creek and the, the property that was adjacent to where I was going to school. And for the first time really in my life, I felt seen. And I, there's something about going through a crisis like this, um, whether it's a physical health crisis, mental health crisis, a big loss in your life, it, it cracks you open in this way. Um, there's really nothing else to do, but kind of break. And when you do, it's like you, you open up to what's always been there and waiting for you. And, and for me, it was this experience of really coming into connection and communion with the living world and, talking to the living world and having the living world talk back. And the, the truth is that at the end of the day, what ended up healing me was a, a confluence of things, including diagnosing those food allergies, 
um, getting help with physical therapy, you know, um, getting off of birth control, which for me was a major factor in, in continuing to um, exacerbate these infections and looking back and starting to heal some of the sexual trauma I had experienced earlier in my life. This was all a part of it, but every single one of those steps was guided by my intuition. I didn't have anyone telling me, you know, you should look into food allergies or, you know, you know, like this could really actually just be frozen trauma stuck in your body from these experiences you had when you were younger. It was all coming from the space of learning to trust my intuition, this, you know, part of me that I consider to come from my, I call it my wider self. That's my preferred term the wider self that is kind of my own spirit guide for me in this lifetime. And, and I heard that intuition by connecting through to the living world. And I think that this is true for a lot of people who are sensitives or empaths that we can get a little overwhelmed when we spend too much time in the human world. And we really reconnect in when we're alone and particularly alone in, in, in nature. So I really started listening to my intuition and that is what led me to this kind of miraculous healing. I mean, I was told that I would probably deal with this pain for the rest of my life and that I would just have to learn to accept this. Um, but that wasn't the case for me and I'm still incredibly grateful and it wasn't an overnight journey. It was about five years, um, before this really, um, shifted for me and I was in a different reality with my body and then it wasn't the end of, of my health journey. I, I did con contract Lyme disease on two different occasions, and it was kind of a continuation of, of this lesson, of this learning. And very specifically with Lyme disease, I knew because I had experienced this previous you know, bout with severe chronic health issues, I knew that what I needed to do more so than take all the herbs and take the antibiotics and change my diet, which I did do all those things. I don't disparage those things. I absolutely did them, but I knew the the true healing wouldn't happen until I dropped in. And so first time I got Lyme disease, I decided to take a whole month and do meditation and shamanic journey work every day. And by the end of that month, I went from health-wise being at like 20% to being at 80%. And I thought, okay, I can deal with this. I can be at 80%, you know, for the rest of my life. And, and then I got Lyme disease again a year later. And this time I had a, a, a dream, a very particular dream where I was told in no uncertain terms in the dream, shamanism will heal you from Lyme disease. And I trusted that dream. And so at the time, although I had been on the month long of antibiotics, I had started up the herbs again, my health was really spiraling. And I thought like, okay, like if there's ever a time to just trust what's coming in through my intuition, my dreams, my, my connection with the world. And, and it's, it's probably no accident that that dream came in when I was um, camping and sleeping on the ground. And I, I asked a friend who was um, in training and is now a shamanic practitioner. I said, I told her this dream and she said, well, let's, let's just do an extraction today. Let's just go for it. And I said, okay. And so we did it. And the thing that struck me the most about that experience was the way she talked to the Lyme disease as an entity inside of my body. She talked to the entity like it was a lost child. 
and that it was a beloved lost child and that we were here to just help that that beloved entity bridge back into the light that it came from and it was such a moving experience for me i found myself crying and having all of these emotions and then after the experience i thought okay well maybe maybe that will have helped but within a week all the symptoms that i had been having at that point for over 2 years disappeared and they never came back and you know everybody's experience is different but i do feel and have found over the years of my own journey but also working with many people in their health journeys that this is often the case when we have a chronic health issue or something that comes up over and over again that we are being called into this deeper relationship with our intuition, with the sentience of the living world, with the, the wisdom of our wider selves. And that often that is really the, the purpose of a lot of these issues that manifest, that it is an initiation in this way. And on the other side, you will be someone who really trusts that intuitive side of yourself, because you've seen firsthand that listening to that side is the key to healing. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And my mind is going in about 5,000 directions right now. So I want to, I'm going to start with this first question, which is not fully formed, but feels like the, there's just something behind it, which is you had mentioned on like taking a walk and you might sit down and get this message, maybe on a rock or wherever you are, you get this message and it gives you this sense of, oh yeah, like there's this sense of belonging and knowing that you're not suffering alone and, and you have help. There's, there's help in, in the world and the natural world. And then just now talking about the Lyme disease and the way that this woman, this heal, this woman spoke to it as an entity that was like this lost child. I don't remember exactly the words, but and coming to come home, it's okay to come home. And and I just think about how belonging and the sense of not belonging is at the root of so much pain and suffering for so many humans. And I can only speak about the worlds in which I exist. So I don't know a lot of other cultures, but in my world, that seems to be really prevalent. The question is this sense of what it is to bring all of these parts of ourselves and of the wider world into some kind of harmony that maybe like, is it from your perspective, is this sense of not belonging in part because so many parts of ourselves and so many parts of the natural world are pushed away and treated as like something to be either ashamed about or ignored or unimportant. And that if we saw the reverence in all of it, if we saw the aliveness in all of it, that there would be a returning somehow to our own sense of belonging. Yeah. The disconnect that we're feeling and the belonging, the belonging that we lack feeling. And is that because we've pushed the natural world away? The natural world and also just all parts, like in, in what you spoke mm. of, like Lyme disease as an entity, like oh, even yes. just acknowledging that, that yeah. it has its own life 
and, and what it is to, to see that in the world and how does that impact our sense of belonging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a, a piece here that was really important for me in coming home to my belonging and I imagine might be meaningful to others. And that is this piece of really being able to feel and understand that we live in a benevolent world, that this world is infused with benevolence and that in fact, everything on this planet, everything that happens, including something like Lyme disease is also a source of benevolence. And I think that for those of us raised in a Western culture, that there's a a long history of especially, you know, this culture that's been heavily influenced by um, Christian doctrines that themselves were co-opted and changed from their original forms that were all about the fact that, you know, this world is a place of struggle. It's a place where we're supposed to, you know, come into dominion where, you know, it's a, it's a toil that we're here to ascend from and go back to heaven that there is a, a a very real longstanding doctrine that told us that this world is, is not benevolent, that it's, it's not even necessarily, um, divine in the way that we are divine or just us and God are divine and the rest of the world is a lesser form. And really, I think what, what ended up happening is people started seeing the, the world and the things that happen here as, as, um, not necessarily an enemy. That's, that's really strong language, but as antagonistic and really, you know, why do people develop these belief systems? It's because of trauma. I mean, that's at its most basic form and Western civilization is a deeply traumatized culture. And so there's a reason why these belief systems took hold in the Western world in the way that they did. And it's not because there's something specifically wrong um, with people in this instance of, of European descent. It's that there was, there's a deep well of trauma, sustained trauma over centuries and at this point, millennium. And what trauma does is at its core, it disconnects us. It disconnects us from ourselves. It disconnects us from one another. Trauma at at its basis is something that happens that we can't fully process in that moment because the charge is, is too intense. So part of us freezes and part of us disconnects from that moment with the idea that sometime in the future we can unfreeze and we can reconnect again. And if you've had sustained trauma without cultural tools, um, without the, without learned tools for how to process that trauma and reconnect, then you start seeing the world from this lens of trauma, which is a world of disconnection, a world of antagonism, a world of, of danger and that's very embedded in the Western psyche. And so I think this is a huge part of then our feeling of not belonging. And so this can take on many forms for different people, depending on you know how you were raised and just your, your innate way of thinking about things. So for some people we can see in the world, you know, this takes on feeling like, oh, I need to be you know, I need to be the the bully. I need to be the alpha dog. I need to be the one who comes out on top because this world is is an unforgiving place. But I think for sensitive people and, and empaths, a lot 
of the time, this will manifest as feeling like I don't belong. I don't deserve to be here that, you know, I part, I innately cause harm because I'm a, a human being. And, and why would this earth in this world want to embrace me and be with me? And that's a coping mechanism, right? Of like, um, and it's a very common one, especially for, for children and in the earlier phases of our development, that something hard or traumatic happens. And instead of thinking, oh, this, this caregiver is wrong, like, oh, the, the earth is wrong because the earth is our caregiver to think there must be something wrong with me. So I think a lot of sensitive people have developed this belief system of, although there must be something wrong with me. And, and this is why I don't belong here. So this journey of actually recognizing that this world is infused with benevolence. And that doesn't mean things aren't hard. That doesn't mean trauma doesn't happen, but that it's, it's all part of this, this greater journey of learning and growing and, and learning how to reconnect when we become disconnected, that reconnecting to our belonging can help us actually process this trauma, not just within ourselves, but in our lineages, these, um, this transgenerational trauma that so many of us are carrying on this planet. And the, the amazing part is that the earth wants to help us with this, that the earth and the plants and the denizens of nature, they want to welcome us back. They want to show us that we belong. It's actually like amazing to me. I mean, I've, I've guided so many people now um, through this type of journey and just to see sometimes the ease at which it happens, like the, the immediacy sometimes that it can happen of like, if we just open our hearts to it, like we will have these amazing experiences of affirmation and care and love. And it makes sense because we are children of this earth. We do belong here. And in fact, our ability to become a, a healthy part of the co-creation again is contingent on our recognizing and embracing that belonging beautiful beautiful all right um i'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction because we're talking a lot about this connection with the earth and with nature and um as if they're two different things in my mind but um just talking about this connection and I want to bring it back to the body and this work that you do, because there's the work that you do with herbalism. There's the work you do with shamanism. There's a, a lot of different branches of, of the work you do in the world. And then there is this work that you call, well, the name of the program, I believe is Pussy Portal. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so to come into not just the body, but specifically this part of the body, because this is like you said, having vulvodynia, this is not only is it really difficult to live with chronic illness because often it is something that's invisible, but specifically this part of the body, we just, we do not talk about for the most part. And yet one of the things that you have learned over your journey is the power of being connected to your vulva, to your pussy, to this part of ourselves as women, or as people who identify as, as you say, I think like identify as having a pussy, yeah. is that right? Like that's, the, yeah. So the question that I have for you around that is just, first of all, well, I want to read something that you said around it and then have uh, some questions from that. So, and more so than really any other part of the body, when we go directly into healing this part of ourselves, it is phenomenal, the kind of transformation that can happen. 
in part because those of us who have pussies or vaginas have been taught for so long to not connect to this part of ourselves, to ignore this part of ourselves. When we begin to connect, the transformation and the cascade of blessings that can happen in your life is profound. There's a couple things like one, like your, your experience around this and also just this beginning to connect because it's just like we're saying with the plants, if I reach out and say to a tree, like, hi, I'm Daphne and you know, I'm introducing myself. I'm not necessarily going to get some immediate response. And all of a sudden I have this incredible relationship with this tree that I've been barely noticing for years. Like it, it takes that time to build, or it can, it can take that time to build the relationship. And in the same sense, if there's parts of our body that we've been so disconnected from, that too can take time. So to talk about what it looks like to begin to build that relationship and why it's so transformational, like why it's so healing. Yeah. I I love that parallel that you drew between the time, you know, taken to get to know a tree or being in nature and the time taken to get to know this part of ourselves, you know, from a very young age, Um, many of us, especially those of us with vaginas and vulvas are told, don't even, don't even look at that. Don't touch it. Don't talk about it. (laughs) And of course we're going to have some pretty big blocks to dissolve then because of like really the craziness, um, of the, the belief systems that we've been raised in, in this way. And so the, the thing is, even as you were talking, and uh, even though I've been doing this work for so long, I got emotional because I can just feel like how, how big this is and how important it is and how I'm still on this journey of finding new layers of connection and um, yeah, just, just really reconnecting to this, this part of myself. So for a lot of people, honestly, some of the first steps, like first basic steps is to come into relationship by like physically getting to know this part of yourself. Like, you know, some of us might have like pleasure practices that, you know, maybe we've been doing for a long time, but we don't stray maybe out of the specific ways that we touch ourselves or interact there. So I always encourage people to like interact in other ways, like touch yourself in a non-sexual way and in an exploratory way to see like, what does this feel like? What does that feel like? Like, you know, um, like what's the texture here? Like, what does this remind me of? And, you know, to come into visual relationship too. So to get a mirror and, and actually like, look at this part of yourself or to sit in front of a mirror or to use your phone. And something that I really encourage people to do is to actually like make a drawing or a piece of artwork based on, on what you see. And this is actually a very ancient practice that, um, the, the vulva, the pictorial vulva is one of the oldest images of the human imagination. So we look at cave paintings that go back, you know, 30, 40,000 years, and we see images of the vulva being painted on caves. And there's a reason for this, right? Because this is a incredibly sacred part of the body. This is literally where new life enters the world. If you, if you think about it from the perspective of, of our deep ancestors, they were literally watching beings being born out of this place. I mean, is there anything that's more powerful or more evocative in our imagination? So 
by taking a mirror and looking at this part of yourself and creating from it, not only are you signaling to your body that this part of me is worthy, it's worthy of attention, devotion, inspiration, creativity, but you're also taking your place in this deep lineage of people who really saw and recognized this part of ourselves and the, the power that it holds. So to just really try and use all your senses, you know, like smell, taste, touch, um, sight to just come into relationship on a physical level in this way. And I think a lot starts to happen and heal just from that experience. Like it's amazing what can happen. Just putting a mirror there, looking at yourself and saying, hello, like um, mama Jenna, who has the school of womanly arts has this prompt where you, you put the mirror down there and you say, hello, gorgeous. (laughs) And not only can it, it make you laugh and make you feel good, but there's all kinds of research about the way in which our nervous system and these, these central part of our nervous system is connected into our pelvis, that we are constantly sensing threat through this area of our body. And does it not make sense then that just the level of threat that we have been under as people who have vulvas or pussies or vaginas that we would be really shut down in this area of our body. But when we, well, there's scientific evidence that when we talk with love to this part of ourselves, it actually starts to relax the musculature in this part of our body and relax our central nervous system. And, and with that relaxation, we're then able to take in other stimuli because we're not in this fight or flight response. So there's so much that I could go into here with the, the research um, here. And the, the, there's an interesting book called um, Vagina by Naomi Wolf that I really recommend to people who are interested in some of the scientific research. But this is, this is really the, an easy place to start. And, you know, once you start making this connection, like I mentioned with just the very basics of like having more space in your nervous system, like you naturally become more aware, more creative, more intuitive, more connected, because this is this, this root of ourselves that is not only our spiritual root that connects us to our ancestors and to the earth, but it's also this root of our physiological body and our, our musculature, like our pelvis is the root of our body. It is this root place in our nervous system. So it's the root of so much of the way in which we function. And I remember in particular, when I was going through chronic pain, I couldn't wear pants because it was too painful. Um, And it was interesting because when I was a child, when I was very young, I refused to wear pants. (laughs) I only wanted to wear skirts and dresses. And I returned to that again, when I was going through this experience and um, I remember learning in, in one of the classes, and I, I regret now that I can't remember the specific tribe where this story came from, but I know we, we were studying um, cultures in the Southwest, and there was an ethnography where a, a woman elder was speaking about the, the time in which Western clothing was first coming into their culture, and how um, a lot of of women and people who identified as such were refusing to wear pants because specifically they thought it disconnected them from the earth because that idea of having this skirt and literally having your genitals be in direct 
energetic communion with the earth was something that they recognized and felt was important. And so they thought literally when you wear pants, if I remember correctly in their words was it disrupts your power as a woman. Um, and obviously that's, you know, that was, that's part of their belief system. I don't necessarily think that we should all stop wearing pants, um, <laughs> in order to feel that connection, but it, it just hit home to me that I was like, Oh my gosh, what I'm feeling right now, what I'm experiencing is like, not just me. It's not just in my head. Like this is a, a, a part of, I think really like the, the human bank of wisdom that we need this connection and whatever it is that helps you feel connected, you know, is, is a thing that's, that's going to be right for you. But I think we need this connection because that is where our power comes from on many levels. Yeah. And it's easy to, to not want to go there because there is so much shame. Either we have a lot of trauma or, or just all the stories that have been passed down. And what, what do you say for people who have a lot of trauma associated with this part of their body how do they begin to navigate this in a way that is really gentle and aware of, of all that can arise when reconnecting to a trauma that may be buried pretty deep down? I think all of our bodies have an innate wisdom of knowing the right pacing. And I think that when we are following our own internal rhythms, um, we're less likely to overpace ourselves, which is often what can happen and then can, can trigger overwhelming, um, experiences, which, you know, can look like PTSD or, um, like revisiting trauma in a way that is just, it's simply overwhelming for our systems. Um, so I think that just doing any kind of somatic work. So I really recommend for people who do have trauma in this area of their body or around this area of their body to find if they can, um, a somatic practitioner, um, who a somatic therapist who could be someone who would help them to really learn how to connect to their body because the body is so wise. The body knows when it's time to release things. The body knows when something's too overwhelming and will back away, but we haven't been taught to really communicate with our bodies. So working with a somatic practitioner or just doing some research yourself into somatic processes. So for example, um, looking into Peter Levine's work um, with trauma and somatic experiencing. Um, that could be a really great place to start. I've also found that, you know, some books about trauma when I've read them felt re-traumatizing, <laughs> but, um, when I read Peter Levine's waking the tiger, um, it actually felt very healing to read. It was activating in a certain way, of course, but, um, not in a way that I couldn't handle. And it really helped me start to understand the wisdom behind the way in which we hold trauma and that trauma at its core, it's not the way trauma exists in the body after an event. It is not um, the event that happened to you. It's the energy or the charge of that experience that is still stuck in our soma and our bodies that wants to be released. So there's a way to release trauma through doing this kind of somatic work that doesn't involve you having to go back into that memory to relive things. It just involves you coming into presence with your body. So some super simple exercises, if you want to reconnect with this part of your body and you have trauma here, 
is to become present by asking yourself questions like, like what am I feeling right now in this area of my body? Just physical sensation wise. Am I, do I feel a little tightness or discomfort? Um, can I sense that, that where I'm, you know, maybe touching my underwear or the chair that I'm sitting on, or if I'm walking outside, can I sense a breeze here? Just like, um, very physical based noticing, um, can really help develop that muscle of just becoming present. And what I have found through my own healing journey and specifically working with somatic therapy is that just becoming present often with how you feel means you start releasing things Mm -hmm. and you don't have to go through this you know, process of just reliving the worst moments of your life in order to release them. You're just becoming present with your body. And by doing so, you start to soften and open um, into connection. Okay, that's great. That's beautiful. And just makes me think again of the power of the stories and, and coming all the way back to the beginning of you being shown a whole different set of stories and what in this, in this particular, in your response just now, it's like, we don't have to go back to the stories that aren't serving us, but to just be present with the energy, to be present with the feeling and to understand that that's, that's what the body wants is that attention. And it also goes back to this thing with Lyme disease. It goes back to the belonging of just the attention and, and being in relationship with, without having it have to become something uh, painful or that we have to revisit things that no longer serve us. So that feels really important. And I'll ask you this question and then we'll, we'll go to the last part of the interview with a, with a final question, which is one thing that you, this is again, skipping around a bit, but one thing that you talked about was reciprocity. And you said the gifts that I can give back to the earth will never be as magnificent as the gifts I receive, but the gifts I give are important. They open and exchange and flow. And then there was one other piece of from something else where you said, you are a flower essence in the well of your community. All you need is a single drop to change the whole makeup of the water. You may seem small, but the energy of your blossoming will naturally open the hearts. And then it says, as, as Saudi women's rights activists, and I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, Manal al-Sharif once said, the rain begins with one drop. And this idea of both this giving, this gift of reciprocity with the earth and also the importance of our giving, that it that even though we may feel small, just the value that each one of us holds in that relationship. If you can um, speak about either your personal experience around that or just this power that is in the giving. Mm. Yeah, I think often we have this belief that what we have to give is not enough or it's too small. And in fact, it's the smallness sometimes of what we have to give. That's the most precious. I think this whole idea that we have to be bigger, do more, um, have things get bigger is it's, it's a bit of a malady in our world. It's caused harm. And so coming back to like the blessedness of our smallness and recognizing that our smallness and the smallness of our gestures are important. It's like, um, if anyone's ever experienced like a Japanese tea ceremony that like every single movement in that ceremony is infused with so much intention and it's simple. Like it's, it's an incredible, incredibly simple, refined experience. And yet there's so much thought put into the 
picking up of the whisk and the putting of it down and the stirring that by the time you drink that tea, it tastes like nothing you've ever experienced before. So I think that this is what the world is asking us to come back to is that we can give in small ways, but when we're giving with presence and, and intention, those gifts are, they, they are magnified and they become magnificent. So, you know, for example, when I, when I make a flower essence, I have a, a bag of quartz crystals from um, a seam in Arkansas that I, I, was able to go dig and find these crystals. And so I'm slowly giving them all back to the earth in, in special places when I make a flower essence or when I visit a sacred site or when I just am in a place of nature and I'm just feeling awe and gratitude, I will, I will leave a quartz crystal behind or a bit of my hair, or I'll sing a song. And the thing is those simple gestures actually mean so much. And I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this in your own life too, that Maybe someone smiled at you on a day when you just really needed some care or, you know, someone sent a card and you just didn't expect that kind of thought. And it's a small gesture, but it just meant so much. And it's the same for this earth, right? Like our intention is the most important thing in our presence. And so these small gestures just hold so, so much power and, that, that piece about the being a flower essence in, in your community well came from an experience where I was teaching a workshop. It was like a week-long retreat. And at the end of the retreat, we were, we were talking about the, the experience of going home and transitioning out, which can be challenging when you've been amongst like-minded people for a whole week and you've undergone this whole transformation. And someone was asking, you know, like, I'm about to go like back into this community. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were living in, in the Midwest and a sort of conservative community where things like flower essences are just almost unheard of. And they had asked me like, what do I do? Like, I don't, I'm not sure like how to go back into that environment where I feel like I don't have other people to talk to about this. And I just feel like my beliefs are going to be ridiculed or thought to be silly. And it was, as they were talking, I just had this download and said to them, you're a flower essence in that community. And if anyone's unfamiliar with flower essences, they're highly dilute vibrational or homeopathic grade remedies made from flowers um, soaked in water. And then the water is taken in, in diluted drop dosages. The idea being that the energetic imprint of that flower is captured in the water and in flower essence theory, actually, the more dilute the essence is, just like with homeopathics, um, the more potent it becomes because it can actually go into the places inside of ourself um, that are locked away. I like to say that, you know, there are some places that are so deep inside of us, it's as if they're under lock and key, and we need something that's small enough to go through the keyhole in, or in order to reach it. And so when I said to this woman, like, you are a flower essence in your community, I said, you know, you may feel small, but just your presence, believing what you believe, um, you know, being with the earth in the ways that you are, it's, it will change things around you. Like you are changing your community in a, in a gentle way, just by being who you are and being willing to be who you are. And I think we all know people like that in our lives, right. Who, 
they don't make big pronouncements. They're not even maybe doing big stuff, but just by being in their presence, like we feel better and we feel more connected. And there's just something about their energy that can change the room when they walk into it. And that's all about that power of the, the subtle and the small and knowing that all of our gifts are precious, that just the, the act of being who we are in this world, our true authentic selves is is the gift that we're meant to bring to this world. And so just by moving from that space and trusting that who you are is precious to this world and it, and it is the journey that you're meant to take, you naturally give these gifts to the world. So that's, that's perfect. And I think actually I'll, I'll go into the last part and I may just finish it there. We'll see, which is first of all, uh, to learn more about Asia and her work. You can find everything at onewillowapothecaries.com. So it's plural, it's one, that's in the number, um, O-N-E, willow, W-I-L-L-O-W, and then apothecaries, A-P-O-T-H-E-C-A-R-I-E-S.com. Hopefully you can't really read my handwriting <laughs> there, but, um, and there, like what's so apart from the beauty of, of the offerings that you have and the beauty of honestly, just the website itself to see the variety, to see that there's classes about intuitive plant medicine and learning to talk to the plants, learning to talk to the flowers and the trees and your own connection with nature. And then there's the pussy portal and this whole thing that we've talked about with healing this part of your body and connecting to this part of your body. And, and now you're in the process of writing a book coming out next year on essays on nature. And there's so, and shamanism, and there's so many different uh, offerings there that are really all of them done with so much care and beauty. So I strongly encourage people to check that out. And and then the, the last part that I do is a gratitude um, and just to connect with, you know, what I feel most grateful for, for you in this moment is really that there is this part of you that so, so strongly identifies as the teacher and does not, that you have not shied away from that because your embracing of this aspect of yourself I, I mean, I know that you've impacted thousands of people, but even for me, um, like just, just this conversation alone feels like has reminded me of something, even like in all the interviews I listened to and all the research that I've done. I feel particularly touched in this conversation because I, well, one, I get to ask you the questions that I'm most interested in asking, but also that I just really feel the resonance of what you're speaking and, and the reminder of what, what really makes sense and what really matters. And so it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's, it speaks to how important it is to not only embrace the teacher in you, but to recognize this, this idea of the rain begins with one drop of that we are, we are a flower essence in the well that each drop matters. And what can happen when we fully embody 
are one beautiful drop. So thank you so much, Asia. It, it's really been such an honor. Oh, Daphne, thank you so much. Oh my goodness. That was such a beautiful and touching reflection. I'm so grateful to you and the space that you're holding here for me and for so many others. Just thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you're, you're doing here on this earth and the big drop that you are because it's, it's profound. So yeah, deep, deep gratitude for this time together. Thank you. This has really been such a delight. And I just, yeah, I want to say that I'm really grateful for everything that you, you shared and reflected back to me about my work. I think this past year and a half of COVID, like, you know, not being able to be with people or teach in person, um, in the same way, I've gotten a little myopic, you know, and you can kind of yeah. forget that, that you, that there's people out there on yeah. the other side of that screen, you know, so <laughs> it just means the world. So I just really wanted to thank you for that. Cause it was really a gift for me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to our conversation. If this conversation has moved you or inspired you in some way, take time with it. Let the words and the wisdom settle in. And if you feel called to share this episode with someone else, please do. For all show notes and past episodes, and to learn about all offerings, go to DaphneCone.com or WithinCommunity.com. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that over on iTunes or Spotify, and you can review it over at iTunes. Thank you for listening.